Our text for this morning is John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. And this is the word of Almighty God. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be uh, expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers... um, The servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And it's then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Pray with me, friends. Lord, I believe there is beauty and grace for us to see right here in a sad scene. And I pray that you'll show it to us. Do your work in your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. None of us really know how we'll respond when times get tough. And of course, we all think we know. We think we would stand strong, right? How many times have you read a story like what I just read to you and just thought to yourself that you know what you would have done, right? Because you all are so big and bold and perfect that Peter's just crazy, right? In reality, isn't it true that there's very little that we can do to know how we would truly react to a difficult situation when faced with it? If it's not part of your regular life experience, you don't know how you'd respond. Think about how many times you've heard somebody say, what I would have done is, when they're thinking about the situation, right? They, they sit around the kitchen tables, they sit at a restaurant, They sit behind their keyboards and they proclaim that were they the ones threatened by the crazed terrorist? 
or the burning building or the wild animal or the board of inquiry, they would have done things differently than the people that they assume weren't brave enough. But do we really know? Maybe we would have stood strong. Maybe we would have crumbled and panicked. Unless you've been in the situation, you have little reason to think that you know for sure how you'd react. And we often hear the what I would have done speech when people talk about the failure of the apostle Peter on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Remember what Jesus and Peter said together just a few hours before he was arrested? In John 13, verses 36 to 38, Simon Peter said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, I don't want us to be too hard on Peter this morning. Yes, as I heard someone say once, he flashed the sword and denied the Lord. That's Peter. But we can't tell what we would have done if we were in his sandals that chilly night. Peter's world was turning upside down. Things were happening fast, too fast. Peter was tired. He was confused. He was angry. He was depressed. Who knows what else? Remember, it's the middle of the night, y'all. The Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples would have shared had to start after it was dark. And it was not a short meal. And then Jesus talked to them in the upper room and then they walked across the valley and then Jesus prayed for an hour in the garden. And Peter couldn't even stay awake for that. It's late at night. It's uncomfortable. I'm not good after nine o'clock. It's well past midnight. But I also don't want us to fail to recognize here, Peter fails. Let's not be dishonest about that. He fails miserably, and he fails in a way that you and I are often tempted to fail too. Peter fails, interestingly, in the exact opposite way that Jesus is faithful in this section of John's gospel. That could explain why John writes this section the way that he writes it. He shows us Peter, he shows us Jesus in contrast, and then he shows us Peter one more time. And we're supposed to see the two things, the two men, and their total difference. So as we take a look at the faithfulness of Jesus and at Peter's denial of Jesus, I want us to take hold of two key points that we're going to see repeated in this passage. We're going to be reminded that God is in control and we're going to see that we need grace. If you walk out of here today remembering that God is in control and that you need God's grace in Jesus you will have gotten the point. Point number one, God is in control. Look at verses 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. 
it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So when last we left the scene, the soldiers had bound Jesus. They were leading him away to be tried by the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus, as you remember from last week, had totally, voluntarily, willingly allowed himself to be arrested. He was in control. It was his mission in life to walk the road he was walking, and so he was right on schedule. We also saw that Jesus is greater than all men. Certainly, he was not conquered by anybody, and Jesus kept his own. He made sure that only he was arrested, not his disciples. They were kept safe. Well, first the soldiers take Jesus to the house of Annas. Now, Annas had been the high priest. He was a former high priest, and he served from the years A.D. 6 to 15. Now, the fact that you can call Annas a former high priest reminds us that the Jewish religious leadership during this time is not in control not even in their own political situation. The office of high priest in the Bible should have been a lifetime appointment, right? Just like if a guy comes to the church and says he's going to be an elder, he should serve for life, right? <laughs> Sorry. This is a fun day for me. Uh, but the Roman government did not like Annas very much. Didn't want him to have too much political power. Didn't want him serving for decades in the high priestly office. So the Romans booted him out of office. They said, find somebody else. So the former priest put his sons in the roles of high priest over the years, and none of them lasted. And then around the year 18, Annas put his son-in-law Caiaphas in charge, installed him as high priest. Now, Annas still kind of ran the show, but compared to the sons of Annas, Caiaphas was a shrewd political operator. He was able to hold on to his office for a much longer time, maybe all the way through 36. Now, because Annas was a figure sort of like the godfather, pulling strings from the shadows to keep hold of power for the family, it's not really a surprise that the soldiers bring Jesus to Annas to be questioned. Doing this accomplished a couple things, by the way. One thing it accomplished is it gave the man with the real power the first crack at softening up Jesus. Annas thought he could make a difference. Second, it gave Annas the chance to try to lead Jesus into saying something that would get him into trouble. Third, it allowed Caiaphas the time to gather enough members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, to be able to put Jesus through a formal trial. Now, John wants you all to remember in this who the man Caiaphas is, even though he's not going to be the first one to question Jesus. And in fact, John won't even show us Caius questioning Jesus, Caiaphas questioning Jesus. John here refers us to something Caiaphas said a few days earlier. It was right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In John eleven forty seven to 53, it says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. 
And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John, the gospel writer, wants us to remember, as these trials are starting, Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders, including Annas, are already plotting to kill Jesus. There's no fair trial about to take place. But I think John wants us to notice something else. Caiaphas spoke his plot, but he spoke more prophetically than he knew. Jesus was intending to die for the people, but not in the way Caiaphas believed. Jesus meant to go to the cross in order to be the sacrifice for the sins of everyone who would believe in him and come to God. Jesus died to bring people from Israel and from the entire world into God's family. Why does John want you and me to see this? He wants us to remember God is in control. While evil men like Annas and Caiaphas are doing their backroom politicking, God is still firmly established on his throne. These men doing their evil deeds. But God is accomplishing God's eternal plan. God doesn't cause these men to sin. God doesn't force them to do anything against their will. But God uses their evil to accomplish the greatest good in human history. God is not sinning in any way. God is not the author of sin. But God is taking and using the evil plots of evil men to accomplish something beautiful and glorious. The salvation of all of God's children. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. You guys know the verse? And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sound familiar? God works what things together for good? All things. Does that mean all things are good? No. There are things that are not good. I had food with olives on it the other day. Not good. There are things happening around us that are not good. But God works all things together for the accomplishing of his good, holy, perfect purposes. Even the evil plans of evil men, because God is in control. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4, we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You guys, can you guys feel some of that, by the way? That the leaders and the kings of the world, the power players in the world, say we are going to throw off the shackles of biblical religion? You guys think that's happening? 
You know what the next verse says? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The rulers of men, the politically powerful, plot the downfall of all that honors the Lord. The Lord is not in the least bit threatened. God is in control. This morning, does it seem to you that things in your life are out of control? Are things not happening the way you think they should? Does it feel like it's out of control? Let me assure you, things are not out of control. God is still on his throne. God is still almighty. God is in control. Perhaps our circumstances are not going to be what we want them to be, but we can be assured that God has never lost control of his universe. No way, not ever. God is good and God is in control. God's will is going to be done. And that should give us tremendous hope and tremendous comfort. Now, if God could be accomplishing his will, think about this with me from big to small. If God can be accomplishing his will as evil men treat Jesus in evil ways, if God can do his will there, Be sure God can accomplish his will in and through you. You're not hopeless. You're not so far off the path that God can't grab you and use you. For sure, God wants you to follow him. For sure, God wants you to trust him. For sure, God wants you to turn away from sin, seek his forgiveness, and obey his commands. But know this, you're within God's reach. He can still accomplish great things through you. God is in control. Remember it and let it give your heart peace. Unfortunately, Peter doesn't do a great job of remembering that God is in control. Point number two We need grace. Look at verse 15 following here. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So we got the crazy scene in the garden. Jesus is arrested. Peter slashes off a man's ear with a short sword. The disciples, for the most part, are out of the picture. But in the shadows, following the crowd, are Peter and, quote, another disciple. Peter is more timid, holding back, keeping his distance. The other disciple, who I think we can all safely say is John, the one who wrote this gospel, he's more bold. And somehow John here is known to the high priest. Don't know how. Maybe it had something to do with his his family. Maybe it has to do with his fishing business. We really have no idea. But John is able to gain access to the courtyard of the household of Annas. Peter has no connections. He's shut outside the little gate. 
So John goes to the girl that keeps the gate, vouches for Peter, and says, let this guy in, he's fine. Everything seems good. But then verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Here's a tragic moment. Young girl looks at Peter and asks a really simple question. She asks, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? You ever been caught and known it? Pull that feeling up. That awful, sinking, tightening, sickening feeling you get in the pit of your stomach. Do you guys know that feeling? You ever feel the blood leave your face? You feel like the person talking to you can see right through you? Do you guys know that feeling? Peter knew it right here. And sadly, Peter doesn't seem to think twice. He answers, I'm not. Want something fun for you nerds out there? In Greek, Peter's answer is a point in contrast to Jesus. Earlier in this chapter, back in the garden, when Jesus was told that the soldiers were seeking him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, I am, right? Ego eimi. Peter when asked by a little young lady if he's connected to Jesus, says, Ook, Amy, I'm not. And for the moment, the girl is satisfied with Peter's answer. She lets him in, and Peter goes into the courtyard, and he's not going to risk trying to get into like the actual building, the actual room where Jesus is being interrogated by Annas. He's probably already thinking to himself, this is a mistake for me to even be here, but I don't know where to go or what to do. And I do want to know how this goes. And he looks and he sees a little charcoal fire and some guards standing around it and keeping warm. And Peter says, I'm going to go hang out with these guys because it's a chilly night. And Peter is feeling the coldness and the darkness in more ways than one. By the way, just the fact that we're calling this a charcoal fire tells us that somebody wrote this down who saw it. That's a detail. That's an eyewitness detail. Now, before we move on, let's learn a lesson from Peter, a little moral lesson. I'm not trying to be hard on Peter because it's hard to say what you would have done. It's hard to say what I would have done in his place. But let's learn from Peter anyway. Peter lied. You guys got that, right? He lied to protect himself. That was wrong. It dishonored God. It dishonored God the Son, Jesus. We want to learn from that and realize that doing the godly opposite is better. Tell the truth, Christians. Even when it might potentially hurt you, tell the truth. You might think to yourself, well, I've never been in a situation like Peter was, and that may very well be true. But you know what? All of us find ourselves in situations where we've got to decide if we're going to be honest and risk the consequences, or if we're going to shade the truth, bend the truth, or out and out lie to try to cover our own rear ends. The godly way to respond when faced with such a decision is this. Tell the truth. 
Even if you just know they're not going to catch you, tell the truth. Even if it's only a little lie, a little shading of the facts, tell the truth. Be honest. Be real. Anything less dishonors God. And this brings us to the point. Jesus has been bold. He's been honest. Peter, who swore up and down he would follow Jesus even to the grave, has just been caught in a lie and denied Jesus to try to save his own skin. We've seen that God is in control. We see mankind in our failure. And we remember this one fact, friends. We need grace. Tell me honestly, how many of you have never told a lie to try to protect yourself? Then you need grace, don't you? Think about Peter, how he failed here. Here's what's wild. Think this through with me. Of the 12 disciples, who was the bravest? It's Peter. Peter was always the one who was outspoken. Peter was maybe a little bit brash, a little overconfident. Peter was the guy in the garden that reached for a short sword, even though he had to know he was likely to die if he fought against those soldiers. And Peter, what did Jesus call Peter? The rock. The one who showed us the kind of faith upon which God was going to build the church. Peter, the bravest, the brashest, the boldest, failed at being brave. Peter failed at the point of his greatest strength. By the way, if you watch a lot of the characters in the scripture, they often fail at the point of their greatest strength. Who's a man of faith in the Old Testament? Abraham. How did Abraham fail? Stopped having faith, said, tell, her she's, tell him you're my sister. Who, had a, who was a man after God's own heart? A God heart chasing kind of guy. How did David fail? Stop chasing God's heart. Who was a man who was patient and persevering? Job. How did Job fail? Because Job did fail, by the way. Got mad, demanded explanations, stopped being patient. By the way, if you say, no, the Bible says Job never sinned with his lips, that's chapter 2. By chapter 40, by chapter 42, Job is saying, I repent in dust and ashes, which tells you he had something to repent of. What's this all tell us, friends? Mankind fails, and we fail where we think we're strong. All of us born under Adam fail. We will never be good enough, strong enough, brave enough, or holy enough to work our way to God. We need grace. Our only hope, if you want hope, listen to me real careful here, if you want hope that you don't go to hell when you die, And all of us want that. If you want hope that you don't face the judgment of an almighty, infinitely holy God, our only hope is that the one who never failed brings us into God's family based on his goodness, not ours. 
And the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus succeeded where we have failed. And he gives us the grace we need to be made children of God. Now, let's watch the scene shift. And we'll see something we've already learned. Point number one. How many thought you would get to point one now? What's point number one? God is in control. How many of you are old enough and contemporary Christian enough to have Twyla Paris in your head right now? (laughs) Bless your hearts. Let's look at verses uh, 19 to 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As we watch the beginning of Annas' questioning of Jesus, a few things are happening all at once. First, Annas is asking Jesus about his followers and his teaching, which is a little bit strange in my mind, because Annas obviously would have had that data already. But two possible reasons Annas is doing this. As we said earlier, Annas might just be fishing to see if he can get Jesus to say anything incriminating. He may just be stalling to give Caiaphas time to gather the Sanhedrin. But look at Jesus' response to Annas. He says to Annas two things in one answer. First, Jesus says to Annas, his teaching is a matter of public knowledge. Jesus did not teach and believe one thing in private and another thing in public. Jesus taught openly, boldly, and honestly. He told the truth about his doctrine. He taught right there in the temple courts. Everybody saw him right under the noses of Annas and Caiaphas. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew exactly what he had to say because Jesus was always completely, totally honest in his teaching. Secondly, though, Jesus points out that what Annas is doing right here is illegal according to Jewish law. Annas has no right to ask Jesus to testify. You ever think, by the way, about the fact that there are things in our country that are based on biblical principles? Do you have to testify if someone accuses you of something in our legal system? No. We refer to that as the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. In the Jewish legal system of Jesus' day, an accused person also did not have to give testimony. Instead, it was the job of the prosecutor to produce witnesses who could testify to the truth or the falsehood of the charges. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Which also would tell you, can that person be forced to be the witness? No, that wouldn't work. 
Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection to the offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Y'all, these verses show you that Annas was legally out of line in what he was doing as he's trying to railroad Jesus. He has no right to try to make Jesus say what he taught. He had to produce witnesses if he was following the law. But in truth, as we watch this whole account unfold this week and the next few weeks, they're not going to follow their own rules at any point. Now, after Jesus gives his answer, an official near Jesus slaps him in the face, demands he show Annas more respect. And Jesus is still not intimidated. Instead, Jesus points out to that official, if he wants to be violent, he needs to testify how it is he has the legal right to do what he just did. Again, one of the laws of that day was you could not beat the witness. That's not a shocker, is it? Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus had violated no law. In fact, what Jesus did was pointed out his legal rights. But the official that struck us shows us that what was happening it was illegal, it was improper. It was in contradiction of the law of the land. It was in violation of the principles of the morality of God. And at that point, Annas knew, I'm not going to get anywhere with this. And Annas knew he had killed enough time for the Sanhedrin to get together. So Annas ends this little charade, this little pre-trial trial, and sends Jesus across the courtyard to be tried in front of Caiaphas. But you know what? You think Annas is the one in control? You think the soldier that slapped Jesus is in control? God is in control. Jesus is intending to go to the cross. And no matter how clever the religious leaders think that they're being, they're only setting in motion the very thing Jesus came to this earth to do. Jesus intends to get to the cross. Honestly, at this point, Annas is nothing but a placeholder. He's, he's a little obstacle in Jesus' way, and Jesus is going to take the next step on his path. He's in control, because God's in control. And let's wrap up with Peter's final scene in this text. And this is point number two. We need grace. Look at uh, the last three verses here, 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. We're back by the fire. You see Peter's just standing there. He's with the others. He's trying to keep warm. No idea what's going through Peter's mind. The second time that night, a person comes and asks Peter, are you one of the disciples of Jesus? And much like when the girl at the gate asked that question, 
He assumes when he asks the question, Peter's going to say no. And Peter, for the second time that night, denies knowing Jesus. I'm sure you know, once you've compromised one time, it becomes a lot easier to do it a second time. Ain't that true? One of the reasons we battle against sin is because sin always takes us further than we want to go and it keeps us longer than we want to stay. Don't you think Peter has gone further and kept longer than he wants? It's true in little things, it's true in big things. And Now for some reason, after the second question, a third person takes a closer look at Peter. Maybe the question got everybody's attention. One of the gospel teachers says that the accent of Peter gives him away. Y'all know, right, that Jesus and the disciples, they were from Galilee, and that was the redneck region of Israel. Better love rednecks, y'all. Maybe the fire flared up a little bit more. Maybe somebody stoked the fire, and you could see Peter's face a little bit better. But for whatever reason, a relative of the man that Peter had tried to behead in the garden takes note. I know that guy. He asked Peter, didn't I see in the garden? For the third time, Peter denies knowing the Savior. I'm not even bringing in all the stuff that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. Peter in this spot, called a curse upon himself, one of the gospel teachers says. Think about that. But there's nothing we need to add to what John wrote. This is clear, and it's just plain sad. Peter cowers and lies when he's asked by others if he was with Jesus. And at that very moment, a rooster crows. And Peter knows Jesus said he would deny knowing him three times before the rooster crowed and it happened and Peter has sunk to his lowest personal point the man who said to Jesus I would die alongside you Jesus I'll never leave you has just sworn before a crowd and before Jesus who could see him according to Luke he knows nothing about Jesus Can you imagine the sorrow in Peter's heart? Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the utter humiliation when that rooster crowed? I bet you can. Because we've all been there in one way or another, haven't we? Maybe you didn't tell a lie. Maybe you did. Maybe it wasn't through pretending not to follow Jesus. But let's be honest, friends. Haven't all of us at one way or another allowed ourselves to act as if we had nothing to do with the God who made us and who saved us? Isn't that true? I've said this before. Some of the stupidest things I've ever done have been post-conversion, not pre Can you identify with that? I mean, I guess you can judge me for it if you want, but I'm just telling you the truth. All of us know the pain, I think, of realizing that by our actions or by our words or by our attitudes, we have betrayed the very Lord we claim to love. 
We need grace. None of us is good enough or strong enough or brave enough or holy enough to impress God. We have been weak. We have failed accidentally. We failed on purpose. We need the kind mercy of God if we're going to survive. Now, do you guys want to know the good news in all this? For Peter, there's going to be another day beside, as it's described, another charcoal fire. It's going to happen in John 21. And there next to a charcoal fire, the Lord Jesus, resurrected from the dead, is going to stand next to Peter. And three times, he's going to ask Peter, do you love me? Peter will weep and Jesus will restore Peter to fellowship. Jesus will even give Peter the charge to feed his sheep. Peter's going to repent. He's going to find mercy and forgiveness in the grace of the risen Lord Jesus. You and I have all sinned. You and I have all denied Jesus by word or by deed. You and I have all at one time or another forgotten that God is in control. You and I have all failed to tell the truth when we think we might get hurt. You and I have all failed to boldly proclaim the truth of God to people who need to hear it. Thank God there's grace in Jesus. You want that grace? Believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is God the Son who came to earth. Believe that he willingly went to the cross after having lived a perfect life. Believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice for your sins and rose from the grave for your justification. Believe that Jesus will forgive you if you come to him in faith. Know that you can do nothing to earn God's forgiveness. All you can do is trust Jesus and he will save your soul. Believe in Jesus. Ask for his grace and he will forgive you and change you forever. And for all who know Jesus, remember God is in control. He uses all things to accomplish his will. Praise him for his glory. And thank him for his grace. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm encouraged by your word. I pray that you will help us to just magnify gospel grace. Help us to live under that grace. Oh, definitely, Lord. Help us to repent of sin. We don't want to feel the shame that Peter felt. We don't want to fail you. We don't want to dishonor you. But most of all, help us love your grace and rest in Christ so that we can be changed and follow you faithfully. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen.